Welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us, and we're very glad that Matt and his wife, Emily, were able to come and lead us in worship this morning, and grateful for all the time they put into it and their travel out here from Little Jamestown that I have never heard of. But anyway, right now I want you to think about the best advice that you have ever received. And it could be about anything. It could be advice on your finances. And it was advice that changed your life and you're no longer saddled with debt and no longer saddled with that stress. And so you are eternally grateful to that person who gave you that financial advice. Maybe it's advice about parenting. And because of that advice and that person sharing it with you, your relationship with your kids is better than it has ever been before. So you're eternally grateful for that advice. Or maybe it was advice about your career. You felt like you were hitting a glass ceiling, like you were never really going to advance. But then someone gave you that guidance and it completely changed the path of your career forever. Now think about a person. Think about the one person in this life where if you found yourself in a confusing situation or a difficult situation, you would go to them for advice. Because they have gained that much of your trust and they have that much credibility with you to where you would turn to them any time you found yourself in a bind. Who would that person be for you? It's kind of like if you were on a mat, if you were on who wants to be a millionaire and you have one lifeline and you have one phone, a friend and hundreds of thousands of dollars. If not, the final million dollars are on the line and you don't know the answer and you have to call somebody. Who's the person that you're going to call? Who's the person that you're going to turn to? You may be thinking of a parent, a friend, a mentor, or maybe even a teacher or a college professor that poured into you. Well, hopefully you all have at least one person that comes to your mind of who you would go to in that situation. Someone that you really, truly, genuinely trust. Well, there were two young church leaders in the New Testament named Timothy and Titus. And for them, they had that one guy they could trust. And that one guy was the Apostle Paul. He was their friend. He was their mentor, their leader, the person who raised them up and helped them become the church leaders that they were in that day. And luckily for them, they didn't even have to approach Paul. Paul took it upon himself to give them advice to build into them, to do anything he could to support them and encourage them in their ministry as young guys. In fact, Paul wrote three letters to these young leaders. Two of them went to Timothy. One of them went to Titus. And in these three letters, there are five different occurrences where Paul will say something and he'll include the word trustworthy. He'll say, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying. This saying is good and trustworthy. Paul believes that this is advice. These are things that he tells Timothy and he tells Titus when they find themselves facing challenges and opposition. And Paul believes these things they can take to the bank. They can trust these sayings. They're trustworthy sayings. So for this sermon series, we're going to look at each one of those five trustworthy sayings. Three of them are in first Timothy. One of them is in second Timothy and one of them's in Titus. And we're going to look a little bit at what kind of situations these two young guys were facing and why Paul would feel the need to share these trustworthy sayings with them and what they meant for them, but also what they meant for us as individual believers, but also for us as a church. 
as a body of Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing in this sermon series. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, use one of ours underneath our chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. That is free for you to take with you. But before we actually read our passage, before we dig into the background of this letter and why this is all happening and why Paul is saying what he's saying, we're going to pray and then we'll get moving. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word. So often we find ourselves in sticky situations. We find ourselves in difficult times and in hardship and facing opposition, and so often we just don't know what to do. We have no idea where to turn, and not all of us have that one person in our lives that we can turn to and trust just about anything they say. But God, we do know that as followers of your son Jesus, that we can turn to your word during those times, that we can find so many pieces that you would have us know, that so many things that can help us through trials, so many things that can encourage us through hardship. And God, I pray that every single one of us will do that. I pray that if we don't have that one trustworthy person the way Timothy and Titus did, that we'll find a trustworthy person, a fellow believer who can encourage us and teach us and mentor us. And so, God, I pray that as we go through this sermon series, as we look at these trustworthy sayings, that we'll take them to heart and that we'll learn what they mean for us in our day and in our age. Because your word is timeless. So God, we love you. Give us open ears. Give us open minds and open hearts as we read your word today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, before we actually get into our passage, it's good to ask a few questions. Number one, who's Timothy? If this is a letter addressed to him, it's good to know, well, who this guy really is. It's going to help us better understand what Paul is writing. Well, as we talked about already, Timothy is a young church leader. He's a church leader that was trained and mentored by Paul himself. If you look at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we read there, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul's traveling on one of his missionary journeys, going around from church to church in the Mediterranean area, and he's trying to be an encouragement, try to be an example, trying to raise up leaders in these various churches and preach the gospel to those people who haven't heard it. And as he's going through on one of his journeys, he finds Timothy. He's a young guy, not very experienced, but he seems to have a ton of potential. He's very well respected. He's very well thought of by those believers around him. So Paul takes Timothy under his wing. We've read about Timothy's mom. She was a Jewish believer. Other parts of scripture tell us that she was very influential in Timothy's life and helping him learn the word of God and being a positive influence in his spiritual growth and his spiritual development. But all we read about his father is that his father was a Greek. And that's pretty much all we know about Timothy's father. So not only does Paul take Timothy under his wing as a church leader, Paul seems to develop this father-son type of relationship with Timothy. There are several times throughout scripture where Paul will refer to Timothy as my beloved child or my child in the faith. 
This is clearly not just a professional, hey, I'm a leader and I can help you out. So you're a leader, too. And we want the church to do well. So let's work with one another. This is much deeper than that. There is a very close and intimate father son relationship with Paul and Timothy. And ultimately, by the time it's all said and done, Paul appoints Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus. Now, that brings a lot of challenges with it. Ephesus was a very large city, a very diverse city on a very influential harbor. And some scholars estimate that there could have been up to 250,000 people in the city of Ephesus, which in that day is a very, very large city. As if that isn't enough of a challenge right there, doing ministry in such a big, overwhelming and intimidating place. This was a city that would be hostile to Christ. The city was known for their worship of Artemis, a goddess, and they believed that this goddess Artemis had entered into a covenant relationship with them as a city. And so they believed that if we as good Ephesian people, if we worship Artemis the way that she wants us to worship her, then the city will do well and will be blessed and will prosper. But if we don't worship Artemis, then things aren't going to go so well. In fact, the temple built to Artemis in Ephesus was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So you can imagine how if you're Timothy in a city that believes that their worship of Artemis is absolutely key to their success and their advancement as a city. Timothy's going to face some challenges if he comes into town and says, no, you need to worship Jesus. You need to worship Christ. Don't worship Artemis anymore. Timothy's going to face some opposition. But not only that, the man that trained Timothy, Paul, Paul had a pretty bad reputation in Ephesus already. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is preaching Christ and some silversmiths in Ephesus hear about this. And these guys make their living making statues of Artemis. And so when they hear that Paul's riding into town and telling people, don't worship Artemis anymore, don't worship idols, don't worship these statues anymore, that these silversmiths are a little bit threatened by Paul. This is their livelihood. This is their business. And so if people abandon these statues, if they abandon these idols and start worshiping Jesus instead, then their pocketbook is going to be hurting. So the silversmiths start a riot and ultimately Paul isn't harmed in this riot, but it's probably safe to assume that he's not the most favorite guy in the city of Ephesus with these silversmiths. So Timothy's facing a big city that is hostile to Christ, being trained by a guy that the city really probably doesn't like very much. There's some big challenges coming his way from the city. But there are also big challenges within the church itself. False teaching was running rampant in Ephesus. Look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So false teaching is happening. Yet another challenge added to Timothy's plate. But then even worse than that is that these false teachers seem to be people who might have been from within the church. They were people who at one time were following Jesus. 
They were contributing to the health of the church. They were contributing to the mission of the church in Ephesus. And yet now they've gone astray and started teaching some pretty questionable things. And so that just makes the issue even that much more bitter and that much more awkward for Timothy. You're not just facing down false teachers. You're facing down false teachers who were once on your side. Who were once your friends, who you once looked at as brothers and sisters in Christ, but now you have to confront them. All this put together, the challenge of the city, the challenge of those people who would really not like to worship any other God but Artemis, and the challenge of the false teachers, you put all that together, and Timothy could really use some encouragement. And so Paul writes a letter. He writes this letter. But how's he going to encourage him? What could Paul possibly say that would encourage Timothy as he stares down all of this opposition? Well, let's look at verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So it seems as though the first thing that Paul is doing here to try to encourage Timothy is he's reminding him of God's grace. Now, that would make sense with the false teachers that Timothy is facing. The false teachers that he's dealing with were probably a group known as the Judaizers. These were people who were similar to those opponents that Paul dealt with in his letter to the Galatians. And the Judaizers were people that thought it was all well and good if you came to believe in Christ. That's great if you place your faith in Christ. That's a great decision for you to make. We do believe that Christ is the Messiah, but there's more to do. That's great if you place your faith in Jesus, but you need to follow some certain customs as well. In the church in Galatia, the custom that they really focused on was circumcision. That doesn't seem to be the same custom here. This seems to be an issue more of food laws and some kind of messed up views of marriage. But nonetheless, these false teachers say, you know what? Great if you place your faith in Jesus, but there's more that you need to do if you're really going to call yourself part of God's family. Placing your faith in Christ? Not enough. And so Paul says in verses 6 through 11 that, hey, Timothy, these guys are misusing the law. The law is good. The law is valuable. The law is productive when it's used correctly. But the law doesn't save anyone. Only Christ saves people. So he reminds Timothy of God's grace. Look in that first verse again. Paul says Christ gave him strength. He doesn't claim to have any strength of his own. He says that Christ gave him the strength. He says that I received mercy and that God's grace overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's reminding Timothy of what he already knows. God saves people by grace. They're saved by Jesus' sacrifice at the cross, his victory over death at the resurrection, not following customs. So Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, don't listen to what these guys are saying. They're teaching false doctrine, but don't worry about it. You stay focused on good doctrine. And that good doctrine is God's grace. 
So the first thing Paul does is he reminds Timothy of God's grace. Let's look at the second thing that Paul does in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy. This is our trustworthy saying for the day. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So the first thing Paul does is he reminds Timothy of God's grace. And the second thing that Paul does is he elaborates a little bit on God's grace and what that really looks like and what that really means. But he doesn't do that by making some doctrinal statements. He doesn't do that by making some kind of arguments, although Paul could very much do that if he wanted to. He's a very smart guy. As Paul elaborates on God's grace, he doesn't do any of those things. He says, Timothy, think about me. Think about my story. He says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Timothy, if you don't believe that, I'm an example of it. In fact, I'm not just any sinner. I am the foremost of sinners. Some of your translations may say, I am the worst of sinners. Why would Paul say that? I mean, is sin really a contest? Well, look at Paul's past. He says that I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And when he says those things, he's not just exaggerating. He's not just adding those words for dramatic flair. He's really being serious. He really was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This passage happens right after a man named Stephen is killed. The first post-Jesus Christian killed in the New Testament. And Stephen is killed because he goes to the religious leaders and he proclaims Jesus. And he goes through the entire story of the Old Testament and shows that all of these times in our history and all of these moments that we as Jewish people celebrate, all these things find their fulfillment and they find their culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the religious leaders don't take too kindly to that. And so they decide they're going to kill Stephen. And there's a young guy there named Saul, who would later become Paul. And Saul approved of his execution, we read in verse 1. Other passages in the New Testament seem to hint at the idea that Paul even held the cloaks of those people who were throwing their stones at Stephen. That way they could get a little bit better aim as they were trying to kill this guy. Paul approved of his execution. Continuing on in verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the, the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul watches as Stephen is killed for his faith. The first official martyr in the New Testament that we know of. And that seems to give Paul some motivation. So he goes out and he starts ravaging the church. The persecution steps up a notch. And he drags men and women out of their homes. He takes them to prison. He puts them through immense suffering and immense pain. And then Paul decides, you know what? I think I'm going to head north to Damascus. 
and see if I can find some more Christians there. See if I can find some more people to drag out of their houses and take them to jail. But then something happens on that trip to Damascus. Paul's riding with a few of his friends and Paul's knocked off of his horse. There's a bright light that shines and Paul hears a voice from heaven and the people with him, they hear a voice, but they don't see anything and they're confused about what's happening. And Paul's just as overwhelmed as anybody else. But then we read the conversation that occurs. Chapter nine, verse four, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. This whole time, as Paul was grabbing Christians out of their homes and taking them to jail and putting them through all this pain, he thought he was doing the right thing. But then he has this wake up call and realizes that, wait a minute, I wasn't on God's side after all. And it turns out all this blaspheming I've done, all this persecution that I've done, this time that I've been an insolent opponent, I've been blaspheming God. I've been persecuting Jesus himself. And I've been an insolent opponent, not against some crazy people who are a little offshoot of our sect of religion and we're trying to get them back on the right track. No, I've been opposing God himself. Because this Jesus guy apparently is more than I thought he was. So Saul is knocked off the horse. He has this conversation with Christ. He's completely overwhelmed. Three days go by. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He can't see. And then a guy named Ananias comes and baptizes Saul and he becomes a Christian. And from that point forward, Saul's life is never the same. And he wouldn't stay Saul forever. You know, Paul tells this story, tells his story, not to make himself sound good, not to remind people of how horrible he was before and just how great I am now. And look at how hard I've tried to get my life turned around. He tells Timothy this story to encourage him that, Timothy, if God can save me, God can save anybody. Timothy, if God can use me, then God can use anyone. So Timothy, don't let the Artemis worshipers scare you. Don't let the false teachers intimidate you. Don't let your youth disqualify you. Don't let this overwhelming and intimidating task that I've given you, don't let it freak you out. Because if God can use me, Timothy, he can use you too. Because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you ever find yourself doubting that, Timothy, Think about me. Think about my story. Think about who I was. He reminds Timothy of God's grace. He encourages him that God can use him because if he can use Paul, he can use anyone. And that leads Paul to one more thing in verse 17. Maybe the best part of this passage, in my opinion, it leads Paul to worship. Paul writes to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You can almost picture Paul. He's sitting there trying to think of what to write. 
to encourage Timothy, trying to be a good mentor for Timothy and help him out during these times of need and this time of challenge. And as Paul sits down, he writes the letter and he thinks back to his story. He's writing down. Now, Timothy, don't forget that I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, an insolent opponent, and God showed me mercy. And the grace of God overflowed for me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And God is using me as an example of his perfect patience for those who might come to believe. And as Paul is writing these things, as he thinks back to how God saved him and how God has used him, tears start streaming down Paul's face. Because he's just that amazed that in spite of all his sin. That God has done what he's done. And that realization and that moment, all Paul can do is worship to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, be power and glory forever and ever. Amen. One of my favorite old hymns is I Stand Amazed. And the lyrics say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Paul sits back and he remembers just how marvelous God's grace is. Just how humbling it is. That God has used him. And Paul stands in amazement of that. So much so that as he thinks back to what God has done for him, all he can do is worship. Now, for us, we probably don't know what it's like to be in Timothy's shoes. We're probably not facing angry Artemis worshipers. We're probably not watching our back from violent silversmiths who want to kill us. We're probably not dealing with false teachers who emphasize Jewish customs. However, the things that Paul does for Timothy in this passage so often need to be done for us, too. In the same way that Timothy needed to be reminded of God's grace, we, too, need to be reminded of God's grace. Whether we're Christian people who still live with this attitude of trying to earn God's approval, of secretly kind of thinking, you know, God's grace is great, but there's got to be more to it than that. I have to do more. I have to accomplish something if I'm really going to be saved. Or whether we're the sinners who think, you know, God's grace couldn't possibly save me. We may not be able to say that we were blasphemers. That we were persecutors, that we were insolent opponents, but we received mercy. However, our stories really aren't that different from Paul's. We could say, I was greedy, I was selfish, I was money hungry, but I received mercy. I was rude, I was careless, and I was bitter, but I received mercy. I was arrogant, I was full of myself, and I thought I was independent, and I didn't need God, but I received mercy. I was divisive, I was combative, and I was rebellious, but I received mercy. Just like Timothy, we too need to be reminded of God's grace, that God can save anyone, not by our works, but by his grace. Just like Timothy, we need to be encouraged from time to time that God can use us. Because if God can use Paul, he can use Timothy. And if God can use Paul, then he can use you. No matter what you've done in the past, what you'll do in the future, 
or what you're struggling with or wrestling with right now. God can use you to bring glory to his name. God can use you as an example of his perfect patience for those who might believe in him and have eternal life. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're white or black, school bus driver, doctor, work in retail or work at a restaurant, whether you work full time or whether you're a stay at home mom, married or single, old or young, God can use you. So just look for those opportunities and let God use you. Finally, just like Timothy, we should be challenged to respond in worship as we think about what God has done for us, the way that Paul responded in worship. You know, we go to church week in and week out. We go to small groups. We buy books from Family Christian Bookstore. And we read about God's grace and God's mercy and forgiveness and salvation and the cross and the resurrection. And we hear it so much that we get used to it. And it kind of becomes a little bit watered down. But I pray that every single one of us, as we think of that word grace, as we think of that word mercy, As we think of the salvation that God has given us through his son's death and resurrection, I pray that every single one of us will sit back and say, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Just like Timothy, we need reminding of God's grace. We need encouragement that God can and will use us. And I pray that every single one of us, as we think back on what God has done for us, that we will respond in worship and that we will stand amazed of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, it is a humbling thing to think that you've saved us. People who every single one of us, we have our own baggage, we have our own flaws, we have our own issues and Sometimes those flaws and those baggage and those issues, they don't really go away quite as quickly as we'd like them to. And yet you saved us and yet you use us. And God, I pray that none of us will forget that. I pray that we won't take your grace for granted, that it won't just become a Christian word for us that we hear over and over. It'll be the word that causes us to worship every time we hear it as we think back to what you've done for us thank you for the fact that your son was sent to save sinners and that includes all of us and we're grateful for that god be with us this morning be with us this week i pray that as we think about the grace that you have shown us that we can show that same grace to the world around us we love you we praise you We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If there's nothing else you leave with this morning, it's that trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. If nothing else, leave with that. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Paul writes there, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and that includes you, and that includes me, that includes every single one of us. And if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, I pray that you'll do that this morning. I pray that you will understand what Paul talks about when he says the grace of God overflowed within me. 
I pray that you will feel that grace this morning. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They can talk you through that. They can answer questions that you might have. Even if you're not quite ready to make that decision yet, if you just need something to pray about with one of those guys, I'd be happy to do that with you. But my prayer is that if you don't know Christ yet this morning, that you will make that decision. That you will place your faith in him, that you will repent of your sin, you will be baptized, and you can begin this journey of following Jesus Experiencing the grace of God day in and day out and constantly standing amazed for what God has done for you. So talk to one of those guys. I'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk to you about anything.